If you are enjoying Paddywhack, please consider supporting me on Patreon. You can find a link in the episode description. All my work is self-funded, and any support would be greatly appreciated. You are listening to Paddywhack. Written and performed by Francis Martineau. Episode 11. opened his eyes to louder sounds than normal coming from downstairs, and to the sudden realization that it was his last morning in his special room. He'd become so used to it by now that he'd almost forgotten what his room at home looked like. He let his eyes wander around the light blue of the rounded walls, and to the small white circle of ceiling directly over his bed, and wasn't at all sure he wanted to leave. It had been such a wonderful feeling to wake up every morning and know that he could run down to the kitchen as soon as he was dressed, could sit on his stool by the stove and watch the cook putting the breakfast together, listen to her talk away about his grandmother or tell stories about when she was little, some of which he understood and some of which he didn't. Not that it mattered either way, for it was the sound of her voice that was the best part, and the way she leaned down once in a while to ruffle his hair with one of her hands while turning over the bacon with the other. Some mornings Bella would be there as well, knitting as usual in her chair. She spoke as little as ever, but even so he missed her when she wasn't with them. Somehow the sound of her needles and the cook's voice belonged to one another, and to have them both there was exactly the right way to start the day. From then on, everything fell into place, for there were always new places to explore. In fact, the main reason why it was so sad for him to leave was the amount of exploring he still had to do. For example, he hadn't finished with the garage yet, the place where his grandfather kept his car, a car that was so much nicer than his father's, with its shiny silver bumpers and the dark green paint. He got used to opening the big heavy door and pulling himself up into the driver's seat by the steering wheel. He'd put both hands on the wheel and pretend he was off on a long drive, certain that he'd never feel sick in this kind of a car because it was so quiet and smooth and wouldn't jolt him around. He also made sure not to take the corners as fast as his father did and to stop for a breath of fresh air whenever he wanted to. But it was only yesterday that he'd come across a flight of steps at the back of the garage leading up to a small room. The door had been hard to open at first, but he'd finally managed to unstick it by pushing against it with his shoulder. Inside were a number of tables and chairs with books piled on top of them, and further back, old trunks and suitcases covered in dust. It had been too close to tea time for him to go on exploring any longer, and now he would never be able to get back, because they were going to have to leave right after breakfast. He wasn't done with the garden either. A few days ago he'd come across what his mother had told him was a maze, Hedges grew high on both sides of narrow grass paths, and once you entered between them, you had to keep choosing the right direction to go in. If you chose wrong, you came to a dead end and had to start all over again. His mother had explained that if you made all the right choices, you finally came out the other end. 
so he'd wanted to go back this morning and stay there until he'd worked it all out. He was about to get out of bed when there was a knock on the door, and his aunt came in. "'We were wondering if you were awake yet,' she said. "'Breakfast's almost ready, and you can't be late, you know, because we have to leave right away afterwards.' She hovered for a moment at the door, then came further in, sat on the end of his bed and smiled at him. "'Are you glad to be going home?' she asked. He knew he didn't have to pretend with his Aunt Gillian, so he told her how sad he was feeling about leaving. "'No, it's, it's fun here,' he said. "'Do we really have to go?' "'I'm afraid so. "'All the suitcases are packed already.' And anyway, I bet Paddy will be happy to see you. He's going to need a lot of riding, you know, to get him fit again after his long holiday up on the hill. She stopped smiling, and there was something about her face now that reminded him of how she'd looked on the stretcher when they were carrying her upstairs. Aunt Gillian? Yes? Will you be able to win on Diamond again like you did the first time? She looked away from him then, as if she wasn't sure what to say. Her eyes were all at once very far away, so he wasn't sure if he should say any more. But he went on anyway, because he really wanted to know. You are all better now, aren't you? Immediately her eyes came back from far away, and she was smiling again. Oh, yes, I'm so much better now, and I'll be back on Diamond just as soon as we get home. He's been having a rest, too, just like Paddy. So we'll both have a lot of riding to do, won't we? But not together. Because if you're all better now, you won't be living with us any more, will you? No, I'll be back in my own house again. But I'll make sure and come for a visit. That way I'll find out how you and Paddy are getting along. Buck up now and get dressed, otherwise you'll miss breakfast. She stood up and went back towards the door. I can already hear them on their way to the dining room. See you down there. As soon as his aunt left, he jumped out of bed and pulled in his clothes on really fast. If everyone else was already eating breakfast, he was going to miss the time with Bella and the cook, and this was his very last morning. He ran all the way down both flights of stairs, noticing as he sped past the dining room that everyone was already at the table. He knew he'd be called back if he was seen, so he ducked down low as he passed by. A couple of steps from the bottom of the kitchen stairs, he collided headlong with the cook, who was coming up the other way. But she had her arms out in time, and all at once he felt himself being swung into the air. Round and round she swung him, before she put him down again, laughing all the while. "'Well, here you are at last, young man,' she cried out the warmth of her large body still enclosing him. Here and it's your very last morning, and I was afraid I was going to miss you. I have a wee treat for you to take home with you. And I was on my way up to find you. Where did I put it now? Oh, hi, there it is on Bella's chair. She went over to the chair and came back with a small box, wrapped in bright yellow paper. Now, didn't you open it? till you're well on your way. But it may help the long drive pass a wee bit faster. Och, we'll miss you sorely, to be sure, me and Bella. You've been grand company, and the place'll neighbour the same without you. Tears began to roll down both of her bright red cheeks, and she lifted her apron to wipe them away. Now why are you gang to your breakfast new afore you set me off a blubberin'? and she turned him sharply back towards the stairs, giving him a push from behind as she did so. He wanted to stay longer, but he knew it was already late enough. Clutching the yellow box the cook had given him, he flew back upstairs, tucking it carefully away between the railings of the banister before slipping in at the dining-room door. His grandfather was at the head of the table as usual, but his aunt had already left, and his mother and father were already piling up their dishes. "'Come on, Andy,' said his mother. "'Your breakfast's getting cold, and we're going to have to leave right away. "'Darling, will you bring the cases down from the bedroom, and I'll make one last check around to make sure we haven't left anything. 
I'd better check Gillian's room, too. She's always been a one for leaving things behind. I do, darling, answered his father. The boy, helping himself to bacon, sausage and egg from the sideboard, looked up in surprise. His father hadn't sounded in a good mood like that since they'd first arrived. Andy, old boy, he went on, do you want to help me pack the car after you've finished? You've always been very good at that. Yes, Dad, I'll, I'll be there in a minute. He took his plate to the table, and only when he was about to sit down did he realize he was now alone in the room with his grandfather. He was pouring himself another cup of coffee and didn't look like he was about to leave any time soon. The boy glanced at him sideways as he pulled up his chair, but his grandfather didn't show any sign of noticing him. As he broke the yolk of his egg and mashed some sausage into it, he wondered if his grandfather had told anyone about the morning he'd come in on him playing the piano. He was still feeling sad about the way it had all ended, the way his grandfather had changed back before he'd had time to ask him about the music. But he wasn't so afraid of him now. It made a difference knowing his grandfather could make music like that. And even if he changed back to being serious again, the boy hadn't forgotten the way he'd smiled while he was playing, how he closed his eyes near the end and spoke at him so gently right afterwards. Close to his plate was one of his grandfather's hands was resting on the table. The back of the hand was wrinkly all across the skin. Lots of little tiny paths going off in different directions. But as he followed the hand up to where the fingers separated off, there were no wrinkles at all. Each finger was slim and smooth, right to where they joined with the nails. Those were the very same fingers which had made the music that was now inside of him, and as long as he kept looking at them it was all right to be sitting where he was, to be enjoying the last of the bacon he loved so much, made all crisp by the way the cook tossed it up and down in the pan. There was a part of him that was able to look at his grandfather's hand while another part sat on his stool in the kitchen watching the cook toss the bacon. He liked the idea of being able to do both at the same time and when his grandfather suddenly spoke it came as a bit of a jolt. It was always somewhat of a shock when he spoke anyway because his words came out so jerkily as if they jumped out of his mouth before he wanted them to and it was too late for him to put them back. But his voice was different this time and almost as gentle as when he'd first spoken after playing the piano. I've enjoyed having you here very much, he said. I do hope you'll come back again soon. The boy wanted to be able to look up when he answered, but it was hard enough finding the words. Thank you for having us, Grandfather, he said. I, I've enjoyed being here too. Once he'd managed to say that much, he took a quick glance up and found that his grandfather was smiling. It wasn't quite the same smile he'd had on his face when he was playing, but it was close enough to have him wonder if he might still be able to ask him about the music. He wanted to so badly, and looking down again to lay his knife and fork down on his plate, he wondered how he could possibly begin. But at that very moment... His father called him from the door. Aren't you done with your breakfast yet, Andy? Time to pack the car. May I be excused, Grandfather? His mother had taught him how he must always say that before leaving after meals when his grandfather was still at the head of the table. Oh, yes, yes, of course. You have to be on your way very soon now, don't you? On you go and help your father with the packing, and when you've finished, I'll be at the door to wave goodbye. You can leave your plate where it is. Mary will manage fine. The boy stopped and took one last glance back at his grandfather from the door. He wanted to see if he was still smiling, but he turned away by the time, so there was no way to tell. He didn't feel like helping his father now, and he walked as slowly as he could through the hallway, and out the front door. By the time he reached the car, the cases were all in, and his father 
with an angry look on his face, was trying to close the boot. He kept slamming the lid down, but it would immediately spring open again. He could see it was making his father in a bad mood, so he decided to stay away. He took a long circle round and wandered over towards the garden, looking longingly over in the direction of the maze, and wishing and wishing he'd at least one more day to get it right. He'd been planning it out before falling asleep last night, choosing the directions very carefully, one by one. He was pretty sure he'd fallen asleep before managing to find his way out the far end, but he was convinced all the same that he knew exactly the right turns to take next time he tried. He could hear his mother's voice over on the front steps. Thank you so much, Father. We had such a wonderful time. Then he heard his aunt's voice thanking him as well, and turning round saw them both hurried down the steps and into the car. The car started up even before they were all the way inside, sending a cloud of black smoke drifting across the toes of his sandals, so he knew he couldn't afford to wait around any longer. It was so warm outside in the sunshine, and he would so much rather be opening the garden gate right now than settling himself into the back seat of the car, not knowing how on earth he was going to make it home without feeling sick. It was only the sound of the geese that finally got him moving. There was no sign of them yet, but he could hear them coming from the other side of the driveway, and he was going to have to run fast to make it to the car before they did. The door was still open, and he made a dash for it, closing it sharply behind him just before the geese appeared round the corner. Tightly grouped together as always, they were heading straight for the car. But it was moving already, and he watched as they scattered to get out of the way, flapping their great wings and opening their beaks wide with a hoarse cries. He took a last look through the back window to see his grandfather on the front steps. Alone and waving, becoming smaller and smaller until a turn in the drive cut him off altogether. Only then did he remember about the present the cook had given him. He could see it very clearly in its bright yellow paper, peeping out between the railings of the banister where he'd left it. If they turned back now, he would only need a few seconds to recover it. A quick run up the steps and back down again was all it would take, but he knew how much of a hurry they were in. It wasn't just that his father would be annoyed, as he always was when asked to stop for anything. It was to do with not wanting anyone to know that the cook had given him a present. It was a secret between them, and so it had to stay. As soon as she'd given it to him, he'd started to plan about how he was going to open it. He was going to take it away to his room as soon as he got home and open it very, very slowly. Now he'd never know what it was. But even that wasn't worth all the explaining he would have to do if he asked to go back. Only one thing helped to cheer him a little. His mother had told him they were stopping for lunch halfway, and it gave him more of a chance not to be sick. He leaned back in his seat and closed his eyes. Seventeenth of April, nineteen forty-three. Dear Becca, I still not find a way out of here, and I'm fed to the teeth with trying. One thing's become clear, though. I'm never going to get myself on one of those HQ lists. My priority is simply not high enough, and to be on leave here is considered to be a sheer luxury anyway. I get very little attention from anyone as soon as they know that, and even the plea I sometimes resort to of becoming a first-time father has no sway. The response is more often sarcastic rather than sympathetic, as if there's no room for babies while there's a war going on. So I've had to look elsewhere and have only today been informed about a 
ferry service that's run by a guy who has nothing to do with the military. He's too old to enlist, but still wants to make some kind of contribution. I talked to him for the first time this afternoon, and he sure is a character. He uses his own flying boat, which looks pretty beat up, but he assures me it runs good and has never let him down. He was an ace pilot in the First World War and lost one of his eyes in combat, wearing a black patch over it that makes him look more like some kind of a pirate. He says he has his own radio set up, and through it he can keep track of German air movement. Apparently their maneuvers are always changing about, and for that reason he never knows in advance when it's safe for him to fly, either from the bay he uses in the straits here, or from the cove off the English coast that serves as a landing place at the other end. Unfortunately, he's developed quite a reputation in the inner circles already, and never leaves without a full load, maximum half a dozen per flight. But the chances aren't so bad, he says, provided I hang around close by and keep letting him know that I'm still on. He doesn't use lists, simply takes the first six who happen to turn up when it's clear for him to go. I found a broken-down old shed nearby to sleep in tonight, and that's fine by me, so long as I can get on board. No word from you, but I didn't really expect any. It's only been a couple of days since my first letter from here, and you probably haven't even got that yet. It's frustrating to know that there are likely to be letters from you lying around at the hospital, and I won't have a hope of being sent on. Frustrating also that almost half my leave has been taken up already, trying to get across to you. The thought of being with you keeps me going, though, and I send much love. Kyle. April the 19th. Dear Kyle, your letter of the 6th arrived this morning. It took as long as a fortnight to reach me, but not having heard from you in close to a month, I was most relieved. I'm still not thinking as clearly as I might, but if you were released from the hospital sooner than you expected, you, you may not yet know that I've already had the baby. If you don't, it happened on the 9th, ten days ago, a boy I've named Colin. On the other hand, if you didn't get my letter, you should be here by now, shouldn't you? That is, if you were still as eager to come as your last letter gave me reason to believe. Mm, this all could be my own confusion, though, because time has completely gone to pot since Colin was born. I had no idea he was going to turn things upside down so thoroughly. I feel a different person altogether, oblivious to everything but this baby of ours who makes constant demands around the clock. I have very little strength or anything else anyway, and I'm certainly not complaining. He's an absolute delight, and it's already hard to remember what life was like without him. My mother's doing the best she can, too, even to the point of taking Colin once in a while so I can get some sleep. I'm happy to say I have enough milk for him now, too, which makes me glad. I didn't take the doctor's advice to give him a bottle instead. So, if you're still stuck in hospital, be sure I'm doing all right. Needless to say, I'll be happy to see you if you do manage to find your way over here. But now that Collins arrived safe and sound, I don't feel so alone and afraid as I did. I still can't write very long. But one special thing I need to tell you, Colin and Cecilia share the same birthday. I'm so grateful she took the trouble to come, and exhausted though we all were right afterwards. We had a celebration for both of them. My mother made a cake and wrote both their names on the icing. Cecilia's also agreed to be godmother. If anyone's earned that honour, she has. I do hope you're on your way by now, and that I'll see you soon. Much love, Becca. Mm -hmm. 
Cecilia's Diary, 30th of July, 1946. Our stopover in Ardrochen on our way back from Father's made for just the right ending to our holidays. Angus, the new rector, invited us for lunch, and afterwards we went over to the church for old time's sake. It took me quite by surprise to be as strongly affected as I was. I knew that Henry would be, what with four years officiating there and all the memories that go along with that, but I certainly didn't expect to be so moved myself, although they were such precious years we spent there, beginning with Andy's baptism as soon as we arrived, and it is such a dear little church, so much more character to it than the barn of a place we have down here. But what came back to me immediately I sat down in the front pew and looked towards the altar was the occasion of Rebecca and Kyle's wedding. It was a similar sensation to the one I was taken over by in the garden that first afternoon at Father's. Details of the past rushing in and out of nowhere as if time had not moved forward at all. It's been more than three years now since the wedding, but for all I knew it could have been only last week. Of course, an extraordinary story like that, with its unexpected happy ending, is not the kind one easily forgets, and it only needed the atmosphere of the church to bring back not only the wedding itself, but everything that led up to it. It had to be arranged in such a hurry, because Kyle had only ten days of leave left by the time he made it over from Africa, and at one point I was worried that Henry might refuse to marry them, what with the complications of the baby and all. I remember listening to Henry on the phone with Rebecca from the next room before I was even aware that Kyle had arrived. The last I'd heard from Rebecca was that he was desperately trying to get himself released from hospital in time to be there for the birth, and she had no idea whether he was going to make it or not. In the end, I was very grateful that he didn't, because the birth was difficult enough as it was. It was quite a job keeping Rebecca going through what turned out to be a very long labor, and it was more by good luck than good management that the whole affair didn't become a hospital emergency. I don't think Carl arrived until a couple of weeks later, and they must have decided on the spot that a wedding was what they wanted. And from that quick decision came Rebecca's phone call. I could feel her on the other end of the line becoming more and more desperate, for Henry was obviously taking a very long time getting a grasp of the situation. In the end, I had to hold myself back from rushing into the study and grabbing the phone out of his hand. There was hardly anyone there at the wedding, because it was at the height of the war, and besides, there was no time to send out invitations. Yet somehow the smallness of it made it even more special, and the fact that her Uncle Colin happened to be home on leave for a few days was perfect timing. But he was the one that made the happy ending possible by going out and finding Kyle in the first place, while the rest of the family seemed only set on giving her a hard time. The most touching part of the service was Uncle Colin wandering up and down the aisle, rocking his namesake in his arms at the same time as the couple were making their vows. The baby's gurgling sounds blended so perfectly with Rebecca and Kyle's promises to each other. It was the expression on her uncle's face that came back to me most vividly as I sat there, as well as Rebecca's radiance as she came back down the aisle on Kyle's arm. I offered to put lun together lunch for everyone right afterwards, but Rebecca didn't want that. She said the time was too precious with Kyle, and for the few remaining days of his leave she wanted him all to herself. I completely understood, but the result was we hardly got to meet Kyle at all. He seemed pretty withdrawn at the wedding, but that could well have been the result of exhaustion. Wounded on the African front a month or so in hospital, then a difficult journey home. It was only later that I learned to recognize that withdrawn look for what it is. After Derek and Harold came home. It's hard to describe, but it gives you the impression that they're always someone else when you're talking to them. As if they can't stop reliving what happened to them, no matter how hard you work 
at getting their attention. But the most important part was that Kyle came through, which was enough for everyone to give him the benefit of the doubt. His good looks certainly acted in his favour, accentuated by a full-dress uniform that he managed to drag out from somewhere. With all that, it wasn't easy for either Henry or I to drag ourselves away, although it was a lovely talk we had in the car, reminiscing about our drachen and realising what a fine time it was, despite Henry's poor health and the strain of the war. I was interrupted by the phone, and it was father in an awful state. I was expecting him to call earlier anyway to check that we all got safely home, as he always does. But as soon as I heard his voice, I knew it was something much more urgent than that. At first I could scarcely get any sense out of him, but once I caught the name Albert, I knew immediately what the matter was, for nobody can reduce father to more of a mess than he can. It appears he turned up on his motorbike this morning, unannounced as he always turns up everywhere, although I can't remember when he last included father in his rounds, knowing how little welcome he's always been there. Father has done a first-rate job all his life, pretending that his first child was never born, and nothing's ever going to change that. But Albert, it seems, has not altogether given up trying. Of course, you can never tell with him how much he's aware of any more than you can tell how much he hears. Stone deaf and innocent is what he presents to the world, but I've always believed there's much more going on inside than he lets on. He's not the Midlands chess champion for nothing. Anyway, Father was a little calmer by the time I hung up. As usual, he left the brunt of the invasion to Mary and Bella, both of whom know how to handle him perfectly and will protect Father to the ends of the earth. He gave him a slap-up tea, I'm sure, suiting to Albert's enormous appetite, while Father hid in his office, quaking in his boots until he left again. During the war, of course, all of us have counted on Albert not turning up because he would never have been able to amass enough petrol coupons to make the long journey north. The last time he paid us a visit was back in '38, and I'd almost forgotten his habit of turning up unannounced. It's always been easy enough for me to handle, though. Feed him, give him an hour or two of special attention and a bed for the night, he's quite happy to be on his way again. And if he's on one of his tours right now, I suppose, I'm being given due warning and should expect him at any time. I'm sorry, though, that he arrived so soon after we left. I would have liked Father's spirits to stay as high as they were when we left. But I'm afraid Albert's visit will have put pay to that. He'll be in hiding for some days to come if I know him. Well, I'm glad I gave myself time to write about our time in Ardrochen before launching into all that still has to be done. There's plenty that's piled up in our absence. Among the stack of letters waiting for me was a sheaf of school instructions for Andy, clothes lists, what he can, can and can't bring with him, not to speak about a bill for the fees, which I hope we'll somehow manage to pull together before term begins. Nonetheless, it was good to see how independent Annie's become during our time at Father's. He may be more ready to go away to school than I thought. His riding's also come a long way recently, something that showed itself very clearly when he got back on Paddy after a whole month away. That week he spent with Alex has made a world of difference to his confidence, and I think it would be a good idea to enter him for the show-jumping composition at Larbert couple of weeks from now. It would be an extra boost for him before going off to school, and I'm confident he could do very well. Fourth of May. Dearest Kyle, so much happened 
the two weeks you were here, that I'm still in a daze from it all. I'm even having a hard time believing we're married. I look at my rings as if I become too doubtful, but even that doesn't always work. A better way I've found is to go back to that first sight of you on the steps when I answered the doorbell. It gives me a stronger conviction that you actually did arrive and stayed long enough for us to become husband and wife. That same morning I'd only just got your second letter from Gibraltar, and after rereading it I'd more or less given up hope of your ever being able to get here. Much as I wanted to see you, it all sounded far too dangerous anyway. Although it goes without saying, I'm now extremely grateful to that strange character with the seaplane that you wrote about. The letter arrived at nine o'clock, and there you were at the door only a couple of hours later. So thin compared to when I saw you last that I had to cope with that as well. It was a bit stupid of me not to expect it, though, knowing all that you'd been through since Christmas. But even so, it was somewhat of a shock when I hugged you. All that beginning part still very clear, but from then on time just took over. One thing rushing in on another, and I still can't begin to put it all straight. I would have preferred a more normal state of affairs, but as soon as you asked me within the first hour to marry you, and even produced a ring to let me know you were serious, I knew the wedding had to be first priority. I could certainly have waited, but it was obvious my family wasn't going to be put off any longer, that only a wedding was going to have them trust you completely. All the same, if you hadn't been there egging me on, I would never have found the courage to call Henry Meikle. I've always been more than a little afraid of him, beginning from the time I worked for him at the rectory and news about the baby first got out and I could never have made that call on my own. But it all worked out for the best, don't you think? I asked the question because with so little time we had to talk about anything, I still don't know how you really felt about the wedding, about having nobody to represent your side of the family. It can't have been a very easy thing to wade through, but I want you to know you made a fine impression on the few people who were there. Anyway, I was determined for your sake that there be no after-event. It was hard to turn down Cecilia's generous offer of a lunch afterwards, but I'm very glad I did. Time was far too short, and I was only too happy to be allowed to whisk you away as soon as the ceremony was over and have you all to myself for the few remaining days. Besides, how else were you going to get to know Colin? I know it's not exactly the same with the three of us, but it was so important to me that you got to know him a little before going away again. And you were so very sweet with him during those last few days that I'm sure you realize by now how much he's worth it. After all, I'd been looking forward to seeing the two of you together ever since he was born. But the house feels so very empty without you and I'm all anxious about what the doctors in Glasgow will have to say about your shoulder, knowing, as you told me, that where you get sent next depends on their verdict. You put a very brave face on everything while you were here, but nothing could hide from me how much more rest you still need before you're back to full strength. I'm also aware, through talking to my uncle, that at this stage they need every man they can get on the front lines, and are not going to be as fussy as they have been about how fit you have to be. I'm sending this to the address in Glasgow that you gave me, even though I know you won't be there for very long. The post should be moving quickly between here and there, but please let me know a more permanent address as soon as you can. Both Colin and I send lots of love and kisses, and I'll write again soon. Becca.
It was hopeless trying to make Paddy stand still. In all this time, he'd never known him to behave as he was behaving now. Head held high, ears pricked forward, turning this way and that in excited attention to all that was going on. People were passing from all directions, flags were fluttering high above the arena, and a voice from a loudspeaker kept blaring across the field. It was his turn next, and he was waiting nervously for the loudspeaker to call his name. For as soon as it was called, he had to be ready at the gate for the steward to let him in. But keeping Paddy somewhere near the gate was as impossible as making him stand still, and the only trick that seemed to work was to keep turning him back towards the gate when he got too far away. At least then there was a chance he might be somewhere near when his name was called. He caught a glimpse as he sidled back and forth of, of a couple of the jumps he was going to have to take, and was relieved to discover that they weren't nearly as high as he expected. He jumped higher than both of them on the last day with Mr. McPhee. Although with Paddy behaving so strangely, there was no knowing what he might do. However much better he was by now, he knew that Paddy could still get the best of him with one of his tricks if he really wanted to. If it had been Jet he was riding, he wouldn't have been nearly as nervous. Then, right when he was furthest away from the gate than he'd ever been, the loudspeaker announced his name. Next competitor for the under-12-2 show jumping, Andy Meikle on Paddy. He shortened his reins and kicked Paddy sharply with his heels to get him turned towards the gate. But all he did in response was back up against the arena railing, scattering a number of spectators who were watching from there. He dug his heels in more fiercely, aware at the same time that the loudspeaker was repeating his name. He could see the gate steward letting out the rider who'd just finished and looking around for him. He took a last jab with his heels for Paddy, finally, to leap forward into the gate opening, almost knocking the steward down at the same time. The boy heard him muttering under his breath as he plunged past and desperately tried to redirect Paddy in time for a good run at the first fence. It was the lowest of them all, two red and white bars with very little gap between them, and the usual white wings set at an angle on either side. It was scarcely high enough to be worthwhile jumping, and he couldn't believe it when at the very moment of take-off Paddy dug in his front hooves and swerved abruptly to the left side the boy's knee jamming hard against the wing of the jump as he did so. The sudden pain, together with the shame of refusing something so ridiculously low with so many people watching, made him suddenly furious. He yanked roughly on the reins to bring Paddy back, yelled at him in a voice that didn't even sound like his own, and drove him headlong back at the jump again. But it was no different the second time except that Paddy swerved to the right instead of the left, and this time knocked the wing on that side to the ground. The boy lost both his stirrups as the wing fell over, and before he had a chance to recover them, Paddy had already taken charge and was racing back towards the entrance gate, the steward waving his arms frantically in an effort to turn him aside. He could feel his face bright red by this time, and he was sweating all over, the louder murmuring of the crowd only making it worse. There were even sounds of laughter coming from some areas, drawing out of him a kind of fury he'd never felt before. Besides, he was fully aware that with one last refusal it would all be over. He would be disqualified, and that realization was the most unbearable of all. He roared at Paddy as they flew towards the jump for the third time, bending low over his neck like his aunt had done on Diamond. And all at once he was in midair, rising high over the red and white bars and landing perfectly balanced on the other side. As he landed he could hear the change in the sounds from the crowd, but couldn't pay much attention to it because he needed every ounce of his strength to steer Paddy towards the next jump. There it was, just a little to the left, a close-cut hedge with a single bar across the top of it, and quite a bit higher than the last. But in no time he was over that one as well, and curving through a wide right-angle turn towards the triple jump in the centre of the field. 
by far the most challenging of them all. By this time, though, it didn't even occur to him how difficult it might be. For anything was possible now he was moving like this, now he'd found again that glorious feeling of barely touching the ground. There was not a moment of hesitation at take-off, and soaring upwards, he looked down briefly to see Paddy's back legs clearing the topmost bar with inches to spare. He gathered them in close on landing, exactly as Miss McPhee had taught him to do, shifting his seat that bit to one side to line up for the last two jumps. They formed the last straight, one taken immediately after the other before a final gallop to the finishing post. They seemed like nothing at all after the triple jump, and in a moment the end posts were flashing by, the steward swinging open the gate and standing well back from him as he shot past. His mother and his aunt were both there waiting for him, laughing as usual, although this time he could tell their laughter was all about him. They came running up on either side, making much of Paddy and stroking him all over. "'Well done, Andy, well done!' his mother cried out. "'Off you get now and give Paddy a rest, because you're bound to be one of the winners, and they'll be calling for you to go back in again right away.' Your aunt and I have been arguing about whether you've come second or third. She thinks you're second, me third. One girl early on got a clear round, so we know she's first. Then there was a boy whose only fault was to knock the top bar off the triple jump. It's between him and you for second place, depending on how many points they took off for your refusals. Listen, they're announcing the results right now. Winner! Of the under-12-2 shore jumping, Penelope Mortimer on Pinocchio. Second, Andy Meikle on Paddy. Third, Duncan Mackenzie on Laddie Boy. Will all three come back into the arena immediately to receive your rosettes? His aunt let out a loud whoop. There, Cecilia, I told you so. Come on, Andy, let me give you a leg up and in you go. The boy felt himself hoisted high by his aunt's strong arm, and before he'd even landed in the saddle, Paddy was making his own way back towards the entrance gate. He was behaving himself almost as well as Jet by this time, and perfectly collected he followed close behind the other two winners to the centre of the arena. They lined up facing a small group of men, and as soon as they were in the right order, one of them came forward with the three rosettes in his hand, Red for first, blue for second, yellow for third. The boy watched as he went first to the girl on his left and tied the red rosette onto her pony's bridle. He then came forward to shake her hand, and as the girl smiled back at him, the boy had the funniest feeling he'd seen her somewhere before. But there was no time to think any more about that, because already the man was tying the blue rosette onto Paddy's bridle. A wee bit trouble at first, eh, he said with a smile as he was tying it on. But you certainly made up for it after. Very well done. As soon as he passed on with the yellow rosette to the right on his other side, the boy looked back towards the girl who was now leaning forward, stroking her pony's neck and talking quietly to it as she did so. No, he must have been wrong about thinking he'd seen her, because there was nothing about her he recognised now. He leaned over instead to look at his rosette, looking so new and brightly coloured on the bridle, and at Paddy himself, who with his ears forward and neck arched was looking very proud of himself. Then all at once the girl sat up straight, turned towards him and smiled. Do you remember me, she said? We were at the point to point together when your aunt got hurt and had to be taken away on a stretcher. Of course, of course, it was Penelope. Now that she was smiling at him, it was obvious. The trouble was he hadn't been able to see her hair, hidden as it was under a smart black riding hat. She had a tight-fitting tweed jacket on as well, and at her throat a white stock with a silver pin. At the point to point she'd been wearing nothing but thick rubber boots and an old yellow Macintosh. He was about to answer but the loudspeaker cut him off before he could begin. Well, the three winners canter all the way around the field before leaving. 
Thank you very much, and well done. A wave of applause broke out from around the arena, and as soon as it died down, they both turned their ponies in the same direction and set off. As they broke into a canter, at the same time she turned and called out, See you outside! Her canter was more of a gallop for him, and watching her from behind he could tell what a good rider she was. It didn't surprise him at all that she'd won, although he didn't like that she was all dressed up. It would be much easier to talk to her if she was still wearing her Macintosh and boots, he thought, as he looked down at his worn shoes and old jod purse splattered with mud. By the time he was out of the arena she'd already dismounted and was waiting for him. She'd also taken her hat off, and her white hair, even longer than he remembered, was hanging loose down to her shoulders. She began to talk as soon as he was within earshot. Is your aunt all right? Is she all better now? He nodded his head and pulled up beside her, unsure whether he ought to get off too. Even though her hair was now loose, as he remembered, she looked so much more grown up than when he'd seen her last. He noticed that her pony's mane and tail were neatly braided, and that its sleek dapple-gray coat hadn't a drop of sweat on it. "'Do you want to come with me to water the ponies?' she asked. "'If you get off, we could walk them over together. The trough's over there.' She pointed behind them in a direction away from the arena. "'All right.' He slipped off Paddy's back, and they walked away side by side until they left the crowds behind them. Only then did he pluck up the courage to say something. My aunt's here today. She was the one who knew I'd come in second and not third. She knew they took off more points for knocking down a jump than for refusing. Which jump did you refuse? The first one. Twice. The first one? But that was the easiest of them all. I know. He had no idea what else to say, and there wasn't a chance of being able to explain to her how it happened. There was no time anyway, because she was already talking again. That triple jump, though, was quite a bit higher than I expected. I was pretty nervous about whether I could clear that one. Me too. He hadn't really been, but it was easier to agree with her. They'd reached the trough by this time, and standing close together they watched the ponies suck greedily at the water most of it spilling out from the sides of the rubbery mouths. He wanted to tell her about the dream he'd had about her, and his aunt wanted her to know what a help she'd been in the dream, but he didn't know how to do it in a way that she'd understand. He was still searching about when she spoke again. Would you like to come over to my house sometime? It's not very far from here, you know. We've got a tennis court, and I could teach you how to play. It's lots of fun. I can't. I'm leaving for school very soon now. Oh, I have to go to school as well. I, I, I mean at the weekend. But I'm going far away to school, and I, I won't be back till Christmas. Even though they were standing quite close while they were talking, they hadn't been looking at each other. But when he said that, she turned sharply towards him, her eyes wide open. Not till Christmas? You mean you'll be away from your mum and dad all that time? How awful. The boy was surprised at how upset she sounded. He'd never thought of it like that, and it was only a few days ago that his mother had told him he ought to be proud of himself for going a year before all the other boys. Even his Aunt Joan, when she'd kissed him goodbye, had told him how lucky he was and what a wonderful time he was going to have. Andy, we're leaving. Time to put Paddy back in his box. His mother's voice came floating over from the direction of the arena. The boy turned and saw her standing by the nearest railing and waving her arms about to attract his attention. All right, Mum, I'm coming, he called back, annoyed that she'd managed to find out where they were. Last time he was with Penelope, it was his father who'd called him away and he hadn't been ready to go then either. I'm sorry, Penelope, I have to go, and I'm sorry I can't come to your house. She looked away for a moment, and he could tell 
that she didn't like that his mother had interrupted them. I'll ride back with you, she said in a sad kind of voice, and after a pause put her hand on his arm just like she had at the pointy point and smiled at him. But let's go really slowly. We ought to anyway because the ponies have had so much to drink. They were thirsty, weren't they? He smiled back, happy that there was a special secret they could have together after all. Then they climbed back on their ponies and walked them very slowly back towards the arena. He was quiet, all the way back, quieter than he'd ever known her to be. He looked across at her a couple of times, and there was a frown on her face, as if she was thinking hard about something. Then right before they came within range of where his mother was waiting, she pulled her pony to a stop. "'I do think it's rotten for you to have to stay away from home that long,' she said quietly. "'I would hate it not being able to come home every night.' Then she tossed her hair back, exactly as she had when they first met. This time it wasn't wet, though, and he loved the way it hung for a second in the air before landing neatly back on her head. "'But it's a good thing you came second and not third, she went on with a laugh. "'We'd never have seen each other again otherwise.' Even before she'd finished speaking, he caught sight of his mother striding over towards them. "'Aren't you going to introduce me, Andy?' she said as she came nearer, then immediately turned to speak to Penelope. "'Aren't you the one who came first? Congratulations!' He didn't like the way his mother had barged right in, and wondered if Penelope felt the same. If she did, he would never have known, for immediately she put her hand out towards his mother and put on a, a posh kind of a voice he'd never heard her use before. "'How do you do? My name's Penelope Mortimer. I'm so glad to meet you.' "'And I'm very happy to meet you, too,' answered his mother, shaking her hand. "'That's a fine-looking pony you got there.' Thank you, said Penelope. His name's Pinocchio. The boy was beginning to feel very left out, particularly as he was still trying to work out how he was going to tell Penelope about the dream. And knew now that his mother had turned up, that his chances were fast slipping away. It was the last straw when Penelope then turned and spoke to him in the same posh-sounding voice. It's time for me to go now, Andrew. See you next time. She gave a quick wave of her hand and urged her pony into a brisk trot away from them. At the very same moment, his aunt called out from the horse box and his mother turned immediately to go back to her. Surprised to be alone again so suddenly, he watched Penelope weaving her way through the small numbers of people that were still around the red ribbons of her rosette fluttering from her pony's bridle. She was still close enough for him to be able to catch up with her, and he was on the point of urging Paddy forward when all at once he couldn't see her any more. He looked and looked, hoping he'd catch sight of her again further along, but there was only the voice from the loudspeaker blaring out across the nearly empty field. That's all for today, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you for coming, and I hope very much you've enjoyed the show. He slid off Paddy and led him towards the box. His aunt was busy lowering the ramp, and by the time he got there he was able to walk directly onto it. He'd been wondering if Paddy was going to play up like he had in the morning at home, when it had taken all three of them more than half an hour to get him into the box but he didn't even alter his stride. Head hanging low, he walked on as quiet as could be. He slipped his bridle off, changed it for a halter, and tied the rope to the ring. Only when he'd gone back outside did he untie the rosette from the bridle, taking time as he did so to look at it more closely, still not quite believing that it was his, that he'd really come second, after nearly being disqualified. It had second prize written in gold in a semicircle across the top, and it was only after he'd read the words over carefully that he folded the ribbons over and put it deep into his jacket pocket. <laughs>